Hey everyone, welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. Today, I am very lucky to have teacher Tina RDH on the pod, and we are ready to discuss all things local anesthesia. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce Tina. For those of you who aren't familiar, Tina Clark is the leading voice in anesthesia dental education. From head and neck anatomy, medical emergency management, and practical tips and tricks to getting anesthesia right every time, Tina employs adult learning principles, equipping her course attendees for success. A nationally published author and founder of Teacher Tina RDH, she keeps her skills and knowledge current while continuing to serve the profession as a clinician, educator, trainer, and speaker. She's a practicing clinical dental hygienist for over 20 years and an educator for nearly 15. She received her bachelor's degree in dental hygiene in 2001 and her master's degree in education in 2013. Her teaching, training, and presenting style is upbeat and fun, making even the most difficult topics like local anesthetic a delight to learn. So I'm really happy to have you here with us today, Tina. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Brittany. I'm I'm really excited. And I have to say, you know, it is always so awkward to hear someone read your bio. I'm just going to put that out there. Totally. <laughs> totally. Is. I can tell it's all true just from following you on Instagram. I'm so excited to have you here myself. All right, so Tina, before I pick your brain, I do wanna provide some information about the history of anesthetics and dentistry and a brief review of the drugs we use today. So the history of drugs that have been used in dentistry is vast and somewhat shocking in my opinion. Some of the drugs our grandparents and great-grandparents were administered for dental work during their lifetime are now considered very dangerous and dentists would never dream of using them today. Ingesting large volumes of alcohol prior to dental procedures was common before and around the 1800s. In 1884, cocaine was the first local anesthetic used in a dental procedure. While cocaine was more effective at producing numbness than alcohol, it of course came with many negative side effects. In 1905, a drug called procaine, which is the generic name for Novocaine, was synthesized. The company that distributed procaine as Novocaine quickly became the most widely used by dentists, so the brand name of the drug stuck. In the mid-1900s, a new class of local anesthetics was developed. With new drugs on the market that were less likely to cause allergic reactions, the prominence of Novocaine began declining in the 1960s. By 1980, most dentists had made the switch to lidocaine, and there are two basic classes of local anesthetics, as we know. There are esters and amides. Esters are metabolized in the blood plasma and have a high incidence of allergies. Allergies to this drug stem from an atypical pseudocholinesterase, which is a protein needed to metabolize these drugs. They tend to have a cross allergy, meaning that if you are allergic to one ester drug, you are likely going to be allergic to other esters. Amides are metabolized in the liver, like most other drugs, and have a very low incidence of allergy. 
Individuals with liver disease or low liver function will have a hard time metabolizing the drug and more drug-free in the body, increasing its toxicity. The amides we use in dentistry today are as follows. There's lidocaine, octocaine, or xylocaine, which starts to work quickly and spreads to tissues widely. It has a medium duration. Anesthetic characteristics will work longer with epinephrine, and avail it's available topically via IV, block, epidural, and as a viscous mouthwash solution. There's also mepivacaine, also known as polycaine or carbocaine. It, it's a, and this drug is available with levonorgestrel, which is like epinephrine, which can make it last longer and keep the anesthetic concentrated in the treatment area. This works like lidocaine in terms of less vasodilation than other anesthetics, and it's not available topically. Then we have prilocaine. It's available with or without epinephrine, but with but even without epinephrine, it has a longer duration than than lidocaine. It's less toxic than lidocaine, but also less potent. Risk of methemoglobinemia. I was concerned about saying that word when drugs <laughs> into the active form of ortho. Toluidine. I'm not sure what any of that means, but it sounds dangerous. I don't use prilocaine, thankfully, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, we also have bupivacaine, which is less toxic than lidocaine, but more potent. Has a very long duration, and we need to be aware of the risk for self-harming um, or our patients harming themselves accidentally or for very young patients um, due to self-inflicting injury. So when there's no sensation felt for extended periods of time, obviously the risk for injuring themselves are higher. Um, articaine is five to 10% metabolized in the liver and the rest is metabolized in the blood plasma, but it's still considered an amide. It's methylparaben free and it has the ability to be lipid soluble, meaning it can cross lipid membrane barriers readily like the lipid membrane on our nerves. Some esters we've heard of, but probably never used or at least not in a few decades. And those are procaine or novocaine, which was very safe, but high incidence of allergy. It's not used in dentistry today, had a very slow onset and high vasodilation without epinephrine. Used to treat IV arrhythmia and uncontrolled seizures in addition to what we used dentally. There was also propoxicane, which is not widely given in dentistry, but if a patient reported an allergy with this medication, they would likely be allergic to other esters like Novocaine. And then we have tetracaine, which is about 10 times more potent than propoxicane. It has a slow onset, but long duration, and it's not widely used in dentistry anymore. Some fun facts about local anesthetic. As of 2023, 47, I think this number is wrong, actually. I think it's 49. Is that correct, or am I wrong? Uh, you know, I'm so bad. I'm like, is it 50 <laughs> or 51 or 52? <laughs> it's somewhere around there. We have are excluded from this number. We think it's about 47 states currently allow dental hygienists to administer local anesthesia. So the states that currently do not allow the administration of local anesthesia um, for hygienists include Texas, Delaware, and Mississippi. And thankfully, Tina made a note here that Texas is making great strides in legislation to bring local anesthetic for RDHs. And Georgia just signed into law this year and North Carolina joined the syringe slinging world a little over a year ago. So we're definitely making progress. And that gives me so much hope. I remember when Florida signed this into legislation in 2013, I was like the happiest. I was like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't wait to go back and, and get certified to do this. It just saves so much time, makes our patients so comfortable. I'm just, it, it made me so happy. So dental hygienists have successfully administered local anesthesia for more than 50 years without incident. 
Since dental hygienists started administering local anesthesia, no disciplinary actions or formal complaints associated with the delivery of local anesthesia have been reported to state dental boards. Dosage calculation is based on the patient's weight and can be calculated based on milligrams per pound or milligrams per kilogram. However, to increase patient safety during the administration of local anesthetics and vasoconstrictors, the dental hygienist should always administer the lowest clinically effective dose. So now that we have all this information out of the way, all the basics, all the ins and outs, the scientific stuff, I want to get practical. So Tina, in my experience, and even you know, in my practice to this day, um, dental hygienists seem to be the most hesitant to administer IAs due to the risk for paresthesia and PSAs due to the high vascularity and risk for hematoma. And I was just wondering, has this been your experience? You know, is this what you see in dental hygiene and amongst your students? And what what are some of the ways that we can minimize these risks? You know, uh, Brittany, yes. For some reason, which I think is so funny, uh, that hygienists tend to have more anxiety and more fear over administering local anesthesia. Um, I mean, I get it because we became hygienists because we want to help people and we, we aren't like, oh, I want to cause you pain. Like that's not <laughs> like, we didn't want to go into a surgical thought process. Right. And, and so I can understand that hesitation, but I'm going to tell you this, like when you actually sit down and you talk about the education comparison between hygienists and dentists in the administration of local anesthesia, nine times out of 10, the dental hygienist has had way more education than the dentist has on the administration technique, a lot more coaching through their dental hygiene school, through that whole process. And I, and I think that the disconnect is that um, once you leave the educational facility, the opportunities to see patients that have severe perio disease, which require anesthesia, you mm -hmm. know, goes down. You know, like when, when you're in hygiene school, one props to hygiene students, right? Because mm -hmm. they're the ones that are really seeing a lot of these patients with extreme perio and are getting to administer injections like all the time. Right. But as soon as you go into a private practice, uh, you, you may not be seeing those patients as, as often. So, uh, so you're out of practice. So then your confidence goes down. You're like, Oh my gosh, am I going to remember how to do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I mean, I get it, but I really, I just want, I want hygienists to really understand and feel confident that they really do know what they're doing. Do you think that the education kind of discrepancy or the difference between dental and dental hygiene education on this topic is, is different and is there because this has been something that has been becoming legalized for different states. So we've had to go back and like take excessive, you know, educational courses and complete this curriculum? Is that why you think we have? Yeah, I, I do. I think it does stem from the, um, the whole thought process of, oh, okay, well, if you're going to be doing this, then you have to prove that, you know, this information, the knowledge and the skill set, and you have to take a specific exam for this, you know, you know, my, from the best of my understanding, dentists don't have to take an exam to show they are proficient at putting a needle in someone's face. Mm -hmm. True. Right. They don't yeah. mm -hmm. where hygienists we do. And, you know, and it's, so it, it is very, very interesting. Now I will say some States do not require that. Like I live in Oregon and mm -hmm. in the state of Oregon, 
just you, if you've gone through an accredited dental hygiene program, a CODA accredited dental hygiene program, and you have successfully taken a pain management course and you've done all of that, you do not have to take a test to uh, demonstrate your proficiency at administering an injection to get your license in the state of Oregon. However, if you were like, oh, well, I want to go work in Washington or in Idaho or California or Hawaii, any of the ones that, you know, most people who are educated here might go to, mm -hmm. then yes, you do have to take that. And so, you know, we always encourage our students in the state to take those exams because you never know where your feet are going to land. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I, I'm not 100% sure. I think Oregon's a rarity in that for sure. I think we gotcha. might be one of the only states that has that. Well, that's refreshing. Do you know if Oregon was also one of the first to allow? Yeah. They, they were. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, Washington was, I think was like 1974 and Oregon was 1975. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will say, I'm just going to toot Oregon just a little bit more here. Okay. <laughs> so all you other seats, listen up. Oregon's been doing it since 1975 and we can do it in a private, in a general practice setting. I mean, this sounds kind of, kind of naughty. You could do it. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> we can administer anesthetic in a private practice setting without the doctor being in the office. Oh, that's great. Right. Like, right. you know, we, we are, we are highly skilled, competent clinicians. We have our medical emergencies. We do our, you know, our CPR courses. Uh, we understand how to handle these situations. So uh, in the state of Oregon, you can do that. And if you have an expanded practice permit and you have a collaboration agreement with another doctor of who you're mm -hmm. referring to, then you can be out there providing hygiene services and pain management to your patients. So wow. I have to, I'm really proud of, of Oregon and where we're at with that. That's incredible. If I consider moving to a different state, I'm going to investigate Oregon. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Come on over. <laughs> I we don't it. have gigantic it. mosquitoes like Florida. I'll say that. Oh, that's a plus. That's a plus. It's a selling point, actually. Yeah. All right. So which types of injections do you think dental hygienists struggle with most regarding efficacy and profoundness of anesthetic? And how do you think we can overcome some of these challenges? Well, the number one injection that I get the most questions about, hands down, is the inferior alveolar. That's mm -hmm. the one where everybody's like, ah, I'm doing it. And I can't get them numb or they're scared to do it. And again, I get it because, you know, when you touch that nerve and the patient gets to zing through the tongue or the lip and they jump, you jump, everybody's jumping. And, you know, I know when my patient jumps, I think I jump higher. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> You're like, oh, crackers. <laughs> that was like, it depends moment. I need to put, where's, where's the adult underwear? I need to put those on. <laughs> right. <laughs> So it's kind of one of those moments, but honestly, and, and I have, I do have some visuals. So um, I know that, you know, we get to, for those that are watching this on YouTube, you can, you can check this out and, and you can always follow me on my social medias and, and see this information too. But, you know, the biggest thing I say, I would say is that clinicians always aim too low when they're doing their injections, okay. because let's see if we can get this the little camera model here. So our, our goal is to deposit that anesthetic right above that mandibular foramen, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes what ends up happening, and I've got my little safety needle syringe here, so I don't poke myself. Mm -hmm. I, I've been known to do that. <laughs> Not in a patient. <laughs> not in a patient's mouth, but I'm demonstrating on video. I did that one time. I was like, that kind of smarted. So um, the goal is to deposit it right there, right above that, above that mandibular foramen. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Oftentimes what I see people doing is they're going way down too low. So really, honestly, if you're giving your injection and the patient isn't numb, just go higher up, aim higher up, just bring that syringe up a little bit more, you know, angle it up towards the condyle kind of, you know, I always tell people, if you learn how to do a Gal Gates, even if you don't want to do a Gal Gates injection, that will make your IA better. And the intraoral landmark that I always use to make sure that I'm high enough is the linea alba, the bite line. Like when a patient is open, nice and wide, that little line, if you just follow that line all the way to the pterygomandibular mm -hmm. rapid, you're mm -hmm. like, okay, at least I know I'm high enough. If I don't go below that line, I should be okay. Right. That's a great point of reference. And that's something that I haven't heard before. So that makes it easy, you know, appreciate that. Yeah. Cause you know, injections it's, it is geometry in motion. It really is. And you're like, Oh, the angle here. And you're like, I'm going in an anterior, posterior, superior, inferior fashion to the medial aspect of the lateral, this, and, and you're kind of, it gets so crazy. Yeah. And so if we can just look at some of the landmarks that we already have, and mm -hmm. correlate that with the internal anatomy that we cannot see, it does, it really, really helps. Yeah. It simplifies things for sure. So that in our head, it's not like, oh, am I at the, you know, pterygomandibular raphi and am I a lateral to this? And am I, you know, it just becomes like, okay, where, where are the landmarks? It can become more visual and less, I think, mentally taxing and stressful. Yes. That's yes. Like that. Yeah. Is yeah. There, and uh, go, I just wanted to touch on the paresthesia. Sorry. So the, I, I understand like the concerns about paresthesia and hematomas and all that, it, it, those are legitimate concerns and, you know, we can mitigate those factors for sure. You know, the PSA and the incisive or mental, depending upon who you've learned from, those are going to be the ones where you're going to see those hematomas most often, honestly, you know, it's just, it's palpating and looking, making sure like, especially with the incisive, like if you see that there's a blood vessel there don't go into the blood vessel. Right. I, 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 yeah. But you're like, Oh, but that's where I have to go. You're like, well, no, I'm just going to go to the other side of it. Right. So you can avoid that. But if you do happen to see one go happening, you just put pressure on it right away. You know, just like with any other wounds, like if you cut yourself, you know, are you, what are you going to do? You're going to put pressure on it so you mm -hmm. can stop it. Just same thing. You know, whether it's on the chin or up in the, up in the PSA area, if you start to see that hematoma happen, just put some pressure on it right away, get a two by two and put some pressure on it. Maybe bring the ice out, tell your patient, you might have a little bit of bruising there. It's a, it, it is a, it's a normal complication. We just don't want it to continue to swell and get bigger and just have a conversation with your patient about that. And, and paresthesia generally is because of a mechanical issue, like the needle sliced it, which has yet to, I have not ever heard of that. And it's usually because of an extraction that, that the nerve is sliced, but when mm -hmm. the needle touches the nerve sheath, you know, that can cause uh, a little bit longer anesthesia in that area, but it'll wear off. It's usually, it's not, a, not a chemical, very rarely is it a chemical induced paresthesia. Gotcha. Can you, regarding a hematoma, like what might that conversation look like with a patient if you notice that there's a hematoma immediately after injection? Like how would you prepare your patient for that? Right, right. Um, so what I would say was like, oh, looks like, you know, you have anatomy, yay. <laughs> you are, you, your heart's still beating. <laughs> and I just, I'm just really honest with them. You know, I'm like, I was, I was giving your injection, you know, I, I nicked a blood vessel that I couldn't see. There is a little bit of swelling and bruising starting to happen. Uh, we call that a hematoma. You're going to feel me put some pressure on that area. 
so that way we can stop the bleeding and and uh, get that swelling to go down. And we're gonna we'll put a little ice pack on there. It, it shouldn't have any major complications. The worst thing that might happen is you might see some external bruising starting to happen. Mm-hmm. However, if you I tell my patient, if you notice that it's not getting better, if it's getting worse, please call us and let us know. So that way we can, we can figure out what the next steps need to be. Okay. Gotcha. Um, regarding dosage, is there Mm. easy way or a simplified way to calculate max doses for anesthetic? Right. Well, I will say this. Um, if your patient is healthy, Mm -hmm. if they're, if they're really, really healthy, I honestly don't get too overly concerned about dosaging unless Mm -hmm. I'm mixing bupivacaine with their other anesthetics, because, um, so, you know, I think, I think, um, there, there might've been a, a, I might've misheard, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, bupivacaine is actually the most toxic anesthetic. So lidocaine is less toxic Mm -hmm. and that's why bupivacaine is only a 0.5% solution. So, Yes. So even though it's a lesser percentage, it's a lesser percentage because there's the higher toxicity, which means that's less anesthetic that we can give. So when it comes to dosaging, you know, when you have bupivacaine added in there, you have to bring the rest of your anesthetics way, way, way down for a healthy patient. Honestly, my biggest concern is dosaging for kiddos because kiddos tend to be the ones that get overdosed the most. Mm -hmm. And then our patients who are uh, highly cardiovascularly compromised. And I, I'm sorry, you might hear my dog coughing here. more. I don't know. He's, he's an old boy. So yeah, but like, for example, and I, and I have, I have a little cheat sheet that I use and I actually, I, I provide this to people who take my courses, but for example, 2% lidocaine with one of 100,000 epinephrine, the most used anesthetic right now used in dentistry. Mm-hmm. If a patient is healthy, you can give 11 cartridges. I right. mean, that's a lot. Are you giving 11 cartridges? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if they are uh, compromised, if they're an ASA level three or higher, that drops down to two. Okay. So when it comes to dosaging, really the biggest thing is looking, understand your patient's health history. Are they cardiac compromised? And if they are, and if they fall into that category of being an ASA three or higher, and, and you know, that's a whole other conversation in and of itself, mm-hmm. um, then we really have to pay attention. And I will say that if you have a patient that is in that category, uh, try to use anesthetics that are a one to 200,000 epinephrine or a plain anesthetic. Okay. Like a mepivacaine or carbocaine. Yes. And mepivacaine, you know, um, you know, it does have the levonodeferrin with it. Mm-hmm. However, um, as of the last I've seen, and I could be wrong. And so if your listeners uh, have further insight, you know, I would love it if they shared it, but I have yet to see m- m- the mepivacaine with the levonodeferrin available in the U S in the last few years, but yeah. it is levonodeferrin is less potent than epinephrine. Okay. Yeah. I've never seen mepivacaine with levonodeferrin. Yeah, I, I did like, gosh, like 10, 15 years ago. And mm-hmm. then I think the FDA made some changes and now it's not readily available. Now I think it is in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think in the States it is. Okay. Um, how can we make administering local anesthesia more comfortable for our patients overall? We know, you know, we use benzocaine topical, like our other than the obvious and the day-to-day, are, is there anything else that you can 
enlighten us about. Right. Um, well, and I will say benzocaine is one of those esters that we use in dentistry on a regular. So, um, yes, you know, of course, placing the topical, that's huge. Um, in the actual physical skill set of administering, placing the topical, making sure the tissue is nice and tight, um, that allows the needle to penetrate a lot easier. Uh, having a fresh needle, uh, anytime a needle has been used uh, three or more times, it is mm -hmm. dull. And instead of having this nice pointy end, it starts to fish hook. So now mm -hmm. you're fish hooking your patient and, you know, just let that visual sit in your head for a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> this little fish going in and out, not super great. And can it cause an increased risk for hematoma, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say, you know, those would be the top three things that we can do physically mm -hmm. for that. Uh, using buffered anesthetic helps a lot because that reduces any of that burning sensation uh, that the patient may feel. So, you know, implementing that. And then even before we get to all of those techniques, just having a conversation with your patient, you know, most, most emergencies happen around anesthesia. And usually it is a syncopal event caused by anxiety. And when our patients come in and they're super freaked out and scared about getting an injection to say, yeah, you're normal. You're normal. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and I, jo I joke with them. I say, you know, I'm actually, I'm more nervous for the patient who says, yes, shove needles in my face. I'm so excited. That's the person I'm like, okay. Like when the person says, I'm really scared about a needle being shoved in my face. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. You're normal. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. Right. And it really breaks the tension. Yeah. And then we talk through some visualization techniques, some breathing techniques that they can use to put themselves in a less anxious state. You know, for some people, we might even need to administer maybe some nitrous oxide mm -hmm. for uh, sedation during that process, just to alleviate some of that anxiety a little bit. Yep. I love nitrous for that. And in fact, I treatment plan nitrous for most of my non-surgical periotherapies for that reason, whether a patient requests it or not, I'm like, this will make you more comfortable. Trust me. <laughs> you know? And most people are totally cool with it. And it, it does make their experience so much more comfortable. They have a lot less anxiety. They're typically just like really relaxed in the chair by the time we get to using the local anesthetic. So that's a great, a great tool as well. What kind of verbiage should we use to speaking of alleviate fear for our patients prior to administering. So I know that you just talked about, um, visual visualization and breathing, but like, can you give us an example of like what exactly you tell your patient to visualize how exactly you tell them to breathe? Right. So, um, well, first thing I, as I say, I'm like, you know, if, you know, if you could be anywhere else in the world right now, besides mm -hmm. here in my dental chair, where's the place that you would like to be like, you know, and you know, I always say like, for me, if it's on the beach in Maui, toes in the sand, sun on my face. That's, that's where it is for me. Uh, and I say, you know, for others, it's the mountain, it's the stream. I was like, what is that for you? And I asked them to tell me like, just like first place, if you were to go, like, where is your peaceful place? And I asked them to tell me that I was like, okay, while I'm doing this, we're going to talk through that. I actually say, okay, now pretend that you are at that stream or at that mountaintop. And you're seeing that the air, the trees, the flowers, you're feeling the sun. I just, I try to verbalize mm -hmm. what, uh, what they might see, just kind of take them through a little bit of that. The other, so that, that has worked pretty well for me and for others. 
The other thing is um, coaching them through their breathing. You know, I think if you've been giving injections at any point in time, you've seen your patients start to go mm-hmm. <sighs> kind of do mm-hmm. this almost hyperventilation type of a breathing, which that's the second <laughs> most common medical emergencies that our patients experience. And, you know, when we, when I start to see that, I'm like, okay, I want you, we're going to start talking through your breathing a little bit. I want you to actually hold your breath for two seconds and then make your exhales longer than your inhales. And even if they're not matching mine exactly, I start talking them through this. You know, I'm like inhale for three, two, three, hold for three, four, five, exhale for six, seven, eight, nine, ten. When that exhale is longer mm-hmm. than the inhale, that actually relaxes our system. It initiates that um, parasympathetic nervous system gets the vagus nerve kind of realigned again. And you compare that, combine that with the visualization, it does help quite a bit. I will also say that I also try my best. I will say I'm not perfect at this. <laughs> I'm not. I try my best to remind my, my patients that they might feel um, a zing going through their lip or their tongue. Uh, they might feel a sharp poke and that uh, those are normal to feel, but that at mm-hmm. any point in time, if they need me to pause for a minute to I'm right-handed, I tell them, raise your left hand. Mm-hmm. And I actually tap on their left hand. And I say this hand mm-hmm. because their anxious brains can't always, you know, catch all that. Right. And that has worked really well for me. What are anything that you've done for your patients? Um, deep breathing, I would say like, I, I comment on if a patient's holding their breath, you know, I'll say, don't hold your breath, you know, deep breaths in and out slowly. So go ahead and take a deep breath and kind of walk them through the inhale and then through the exhale. And I, um, have said, you know, I want you to think about what you're going to have for dinner, what's going on later tonight. And this is as I'm giving the injection. If I can tell either they're holding their breath or they're starting to hyperventilate, I just kind of try and divert their attention to something else so that, you know, this awkward, you know, uncomfortable thing is happening, but think about whatever you're looking forward to later. And most people are like looking forward to dinner. Yeah. (laughs) I am at work. (laughs) Give me that mac and cheese. (laughs) Seriously. seriously, Think about that mac and cheese. It's it's a wonderful thing. It'll make this a lot more pleasant for you. Um, Okay. So kind of back to technique. Um, When we are struggling with an IA injection, which you mentioned the Gal Gates, but I'm just wondering, is that the alternative injection method that we should use? And anatomically, is it just superior to the IA? Or like, what's the simplest way to explain the alternative to an IA or or a simpler way? Yeah, well, there's, um, there's really mainly three mandibular blocks that we've got. We have the traditional IA. We've got the gal gates where the patient has to open really, really wide. Um, there are there are some differences uh, beyond just going higher up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. And then the other one is the VA, the Vazirani echinoses, which is the closed mouth technique, which mm-hmm. patients absolutely love. Clinicians get nervous about because they're like, well, I can't really see. And then I don't know, you know like you're not supposed to contact bone. So am I in the right spot? there's a steep learning curve, but once you have it, it, you're like, oh, this is great. And I've had people tell me like, Tina, thank you. I started using the VA and now I love it. My patients love it. It's, it's great. So, um, but when you've, when you've learned the IA, 
transitioning to the Gal Gates is a much easier step mentally and physically than transitioning to the VA, to the Vazirani Akinosis. So the overall goal with the Gal Gates, again, is to bathe the nerve higher up on along the nerve path. So as a reminder of our anatomy, <clears throat> the inferior alveolar nerve travels down the inside portion of the mandible. We are the medial portion of the ramus, so the inside portion of the mandible. Now, like I said earlier, our goal is to get that nerve bathed before it enters the mandibular foramen. Now that nerve, that pathway actually goes right by the condyle of the mandible, right by the TMJ joint. So mm -hmm. when we're doing the gal gates, we're actually trying to get right up into that spot. And let me move my, my hands here so that way we can see that. So we're actually aiming higher up and trying to get it right up near the neck of the condyle. Okay. So when you're doing your, when you're doing your IA, here we go. When you're doing your IA. And so instead of coming here, you're going upward at an angle. Okay. So I always like, you know, the IA is parallel. The gal gates is upward. I heard somebody say this one time, and I think it was probably Stanley Malamed, right? The godfather of anesthesia said the IA is a straight path. The gal gates is like an airplane taking off. And I'm like, and it, it is, it's a great visual. You're going to mm -hmm. be in that upward, upward fashion. Thank you. That's very helpful. Okay. Um, what do you wish that every hygienist knew about administering local anesthesia? Um, that you know more than you learned a lot and you know more than you think you do. That's one. Two is that while the whole entire process, you know, the, from uncapping the needle to recapping the needle, that three to five minute process may cause some anxiety for your patient and for you. Mm -hmm. It is so much better to have a shorter window of that than to have an hour to hour and a half, two hours, however long that procedure is of sitting there wondering, is your patient comfortable? Or you see them white knuckling it and they're like pulling their head away from you when mm -hmm. your goal is to provide the highest quality of care that you can for them. And when they're squiggling and moving and you hear you are, you're trying to, you know, remove this deposit that five, you know, five millimeters below the pocket and there's blood everywhere. And you know, you're going at it. Like you can't like, we just can't. It's, it's, it, I shouldn't say you can't, it is really hard mm -hmm. to be able to provide your best quality of work when your patient is uncomfortable. It Agreed. really is. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, and this is kind of circling back to something that we already touched on, but I, I want to revisit this because I would like, um, maybe some verbiage on the other half of this question, and you'll see what I mean in just a second. So if a patient should suffer a hematoma or transient paresthesia as a result of a local anesthetic injection, how can we manage this most effectively? So I know that, you know, I was referring to, we talked about managing the hematoma and how to talk to our patient about that. But like, if that person should call and say, this is getting worse and they come into the office, like how might that be managed and how might also paresthesia be managed? Wow. That's a, that is, that's the million dollar question, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, well, you know, this is where, you know, as a hygienist, this is where you would definitely be collaborating with the rest of your team, you know, with the doctor as well. Uh, so that way there's crystal clear communication between you and the patient and the patient and the doctor and the doctor and the hygienist, you know, you mm -hmm. want to have all of that. 
The other thing is if the, if there's a hematoma and it is continuing to bleed, you know, I'm concerned about bleeding disorders for that patient. I'm concerned about other issues. So uh, coming back at, coming back to the dental office, you know, to be like, oh, how much has it spread? That's great, but it might even be better. And and again, I am, I am, I will say that this is the realm where, you know, everybody has different opinions and, you know, look at your state practice act, all of that, all of those caveats. Mm-hmm. But um, if the bleeding doesn't stop, then they should get into, you know, their primary care or a hospital setting so that that way they can address that issue. Right. Because right now it's like, you know, I'm not concerned about anything else other than let's get the bleeding to stop. And Mm -hmm. the dental office doesn't necessarily have all of the items on hand to make the bleeding stop. Right. Right. So, you know, say that again. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When it, when it comes to paresthesia, you know, you, we, that's where we have to start going, okay, what are the different reasons why we'd have paresthesia happening? Is it chemical based? Probably not, you know, if, especially like, say you did a whole half mouth mm-hmm. and it's only the mandible that's numb, but not the maxilla. And when we look at paresthesia cases, it's mainly the mandible. Um, so if it's, if it's a chemical based paresthesia, it would be, you would see it throughout the mouth at various degrees all the time. Right. Okay. And I know that's a big concern about a couple of our, our anesthetics that we use. And I'll, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to talk about that here in a little bit. Um, you know, if it was trauma induced, um, understanding why, like if, it, if the only procedure that was done was anesthesia and there's paresthesia, you know, it's going to be possibly chemical induced or the needle touched the neural sheath and, and caused some of those issues. Mm-hmm. And it also could be maybe the patient's having a muscle spasm and the muscle is pinching the nerve. Oh, okay. Right. That could be. And I'm, and the reason why I say that is because I recently experienced that. I I had a cervical vertebrae that was out and was putting pressure and I actually was having paresthesia of my face. Like that was really, and so I was like, Oh, great reminder of all the reasons why we might have this continued numbness happening. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of different types of reasons why, um, what I would say is, um, if just have a continued conversation with your patient, get them in on a regular basis. If it's potentially due to an infection, you know, maybe they need to go on some antibiotics, same thing, like with trismus, trismus could be caused through trauma to the muscle or infection or a hematoma developing in the muscle. So, um, you know, you, you really have to be in a detective to dive down into the root cause and then know where to go from there. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the drugs that cause chemical paresthesia? Like which drugs are the highest risk and like how much of that drug would you have to administer above safe dosages, you know, to, to have that issue? Right. So the literature is, I will say as a little unclear as far as chemical paresthesia, they just say mm-hmm. these, when, when these injections were done, with these particular anesthetics, these are the rates of paresthesia. Not necessarily saying was it not knowing what the actual cause of it was. Now you can make you can make uh, some assumptions through there, but um, it, it the literature is is unclear as to what is the actual reason. Now the big concern about articaine 
and paresthesia, articane, also known as septicane, uh, like, you know, septicane's the trade name, articane's the generic name, and, you know, we use them vice versa all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, when, when articane first came out on the field, it was very, very new. And, you know, there were all these cases like, oh, can't use this because of, of X, Y, or Z. And the whole concern about paresthesia and articane when, when the research that I've done unveiled that it was actually a malpractice insurance agency in the, in the Midwest that sent out a letter to all of the dentists that they cover and, or that they cover and, or wanted to gain their business and said, Hey, this new drug that's out could cause paresthesia. If you use it up your malpractice insurance or let us cover you to, so that you're safe. And that letter was out. That company was actually asked to retract that statement, but the damage had already been done. The word got out. And so people started panicking. So that's really (laughs) kind of where it comes from. But I will tell you, um, general medicine uses Articane on a regular basis. Articane was designed for dentistry, but general medicine uses it. I was reading a research study where they actually use Articane for, um, knee surgery for day knee surgery, where they'll go through, do, um, I forgot the term where you do the microscopic orthoscopic surgery. Mm-hmm. They'll mm-hmm. use that to do blocks to, for the knee. And I'm kind of like, okay, if they're not afraid to do it for the blocks for the knee and there's not an issue with that. So I don't know, that's, those are my thoughts on it. And the research supports that we can use Articane. Um, and I encourage people to really think about that. I love it. I use it all the time. Yeah. So if someone wants additional help um, or coaching with local anesthesia after being officially certified, what are some resources that you recommend they use? Well, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say me, right? Of course, of course. (laughs) Like, come see me. Like, I have online on-demand courses. Come to any of my courses. Follow me on the socials, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, But there are some other great resources that are available, too. Um, You know, my friends at Hygiene Edge, they have some really cool um, items uh, available. You know, almost every single um, CE platform has, you know, talks about these types of things. Honestly, my best advice is to connect up with somebody that you trust, because if you're feeling anxious about administering anesthesia, if you can't trust the person that's teaching you, that's not going to help you. So my best advice is connected with, with someone that you're like, okay, I really trust this individual. I trust what he or she is saying and how they're going about this. And, and I, I can have confidence in their knowledge and in their skill set, And that will help you feel more receptive to the information. But I, I say, come see me. (laughs) I love that. Yes. And her uh, Instagram handle is teacher underscore Tina underscore RDH. And then your website is teachertinardh.com, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. The same thing on and Facebook. We can just look at the same thing on Facebook. Platforms. Teacher Tina RDH. Yep. Try to make it simple. Perfect. Perfect. And do you have any last thoughts, any additional thoughts, tricks, tips that we didn't get to that we didn't mention that you'd like to leave us with? Oh gosh. Yes. Um, I'm sure, you know, my brain, I love anesthesia. I love talking anesthesia. I mean, I could, we could just go on and on, Brittany, but uh, yeah, you know, honestly, when it comes down to it, uh, have a, be brave enough to have a conversation with your patient and let them know that your, their best interest is in your heart, right? 
that, that you want the best for them and that you want to be able to provide your best self for them. And sometimes that means going ahead and getting them numb. And as, as we transition into this uh, world where more hygienists are giving anesthetic and we're starting to see these collaborative practice agreements coming forward from state to state to state, mm-hmm. the opportunity and maybe even the requirement for a hygienist to administer anesthesia is going to be going up. So if you are avoiding that, I really, really encourage you to take the initiative yourself and start walking yourself through the process of gaining your confidence back. Thank you. Yeah. And I want to say like, it was, it was so daunting for me. I graduated in 2012 and then a year later had to go back and take the certification for local anesthesia. So while I was super excited that it finally passed for the state of Florida, and I thought that it would save everyone time and just make my patients more comfortable and it would just enable ease of practice. I was very hesitant and nervous to go back and get that certification. Like it is very daunting, but I'm so glad that I did. Like it has made a night and day difference. It's helped so much with time management. I don't hesitate at all to give local anesthetic. Now I give IAs like so much. I don't, I don't even wait for that severe disease state because I find that even with mild or moderate disease, there's, there's such an acidic pH that it's like, I want to use whatever's going to be most effective. And a lot of times topicals don't work as effectively, you know, and that, when that's the case. So, and it really does the little pinch and the little discomfort on the front end, like you were mentioning earlier is so much preferred and makes patients so much more comfortable for the rest of that 90 minute or two hour appointment that it does make the difference of whether or not they are afraid to return to the dentist or they dread coming to the dentist, you know? So it is, it's in our power to make our patients comfortable. So I think if, if it's legal in your state, it's a huge, like, it's like a badge of honor, I think, to be able to administer local anesthetic. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing, and I, and I should have mentioned earlier, and I, I kind of touched on it, but really explore using buffered anesthetics. I really, I really think that that's going to be the next big wave that we're going to start seeing becoming a kind of standard protocol is using Mm -hmm. buffered anesthetics because, you know, it lessens the onset time. So you can, your patient can get numb. You'll know if your patient's numb a lot sooner and it reduces that stinging and that pain for your patient as well. So just, just consider that. Do you know if with any of the buffering agents, there's an incidence of allergy, like are people sensitive or are there allergies to those agents or not normally? Well, it's mainly sodium bicarbonate Okay. and the, um, you know, I don't know enough about sodium bicarbonate and allergic reaction, uh, necessarily. I, what I do know is that when you're using a buffering agent, you have to be very cognizant with the amount that you use for the type of anesthetic that you have, because each anesthetic has a different pH. And so you have to, you have to modulate. It's a, it's a teeter totter action so that you put just the right amount of buffering agent in that you have uh, for that type of anesthetic. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of companies out there. There's some people that um, are swear by the homemade version. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, that's a whole nother topic. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, we'll have to have a round two. I'm I'm game. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and your bio was absolutely true. You made this fun. I had so much fun. <laughs> I've had a great time too. Thank you. You're welcome. So we hope that this was helpful to our listeners and we are looking forward to any feedback you guys provide us with on this topic. Remember that you can connect with us on our mighty network by downloading the app and searching Bulletproof Hygiene. 
And also remember that our in-person summit is right around the corner and it's happening on August 11th and 12th in Las Vegas. So for more information about the event, the syntax, the breakouts, the CE, group rates, and to register, go ahead and go to bulletproofsummit.com. We look forward to seeing you guys next week. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hedging Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.